iHeartRadio presents Inside the Studio. I'm your host, Joe Levy. Now this time around, I got to sit down with Steve Perry, who is the singer for Journey, provided the soundtrack to somewhere between 70 and 110 million high school proms, as well as several billion trips down the highway, and the final episode of The Sopranos. We talked about his new album, Traces, his return to music after a two-decade absence. We talked about the loss of a loved one that motivated that return. And we talked about the pressures and pains that led to that long absence, a time when he found he couldn't even listen to music, let alone make it. When Perry joined Journey in 1977, he was 26 and he'd already been through several bands, but never landed an album deal. For their part, Journey had already recorded three albums to not much notice. They were technically gifted. Guitarist Neil Schoen and keyboardist Greg Rowley had played with Santana. And at that point, Journey was a slightly proggy band that sang about walking across the clouds and then backed it up with five or six minutes of skyscraping guitar solos. So they had chops. What they lacked was a rock and roll heart. Perry provided just that. So here we stand, so the first song he ever wrote with Neil Schoen, Patiently, was packed with personal longing, both for love and success. If you listen to the lyrics, it's really a story about where I'm at at that moment, talking to them about patiently waiting to join that banner, to be under the lights that they were under. Or your lights inside of me, this we bring to you. The opening track on the first album Perry recorded with Journey, 1978's Infinity, was Lights, which is familiar to anyone who's seen a San Francisco Giants game. And you can hear the classic soul music that Perry grew up loving in those opening chords. Once again, this song is packed full of longing. Except in this case, it's not about wanting to be under the spotlight. It's about wanting to return home. In some sense, those two impulses and the contradiction between them would define everything Perry and Journey did over the next decade. He helped create a stadium-packing monster of rock, seven consecutive multi-platinum albums, 18 top 40 singles from the speeding ticket-inducing stomper Any Way You Want It. To the slow-waltzing open arms, which will be one of the cornerstones of the Power Ballad Hall of Fame if they ever get around to building one. And then there were songs that combined both stomping and power balloting, like Don't Stop Believing or Oh Sherry, the 1984 single from Perry's first solo album, Street Talk. So Steve Perry was a guy who could combine prog rock with soul music, or the classicism of Bruce Springsteen 
with new wave synths and drums. He had a voice that was operatic, Freddie Mercury style. But one reason his music became a soundtrack to everyday life is that it actually felt rooted in it. Just a small town girl. It really doesn't matter that there is no such place as South Detroit. What matters is that there are lonely people who feel the way the small town girl and the city boy in Don't Stop Believing feel and who want to both experience that feeling and get some relief from it for the four minutes and nine seconds that that song lasts. Now, there were a lot of those kinds of people. Journey's Greatest Hits has sold better than 10 million copies. But in February of 1987, Steve Perry played the last of 74 dates on Journey's tour for their ninth album, the aptly named Raised on Radio, and he returned home. And for a long while, that was it. He was done. Perry was suffering from what he describes as PTSD, and he went back to the San Joaquin Valley in Central California, where he grew up, in order to recover. And PTSD is actually something other musicians I've spoken with refer to when they talk about how difficult it can be to adjust to the real world after life on the road. In Perry's case, it was something more than that. A burnout so severe that initially he found himself unable to listen to any music other than the soothing sounds of ambient. He spent time riding his Harley, caring for family, and trying to reconnect with himself. Though he'd make another solo album in 1994, it was a little out of step with things at the height of grunge. And though he'd reunite with Journey for an album in 1996, he did not want to tour for it. He seemed to be done with the spotlight that he'd been longing for back when he wrote Patiently in 1977. But something happened during Perry's time away. The music he made with Journey, critically dismissed at the height of its popularity as corporate rock, began to be more beloved, which is the kind of thing that does happen as cultural gatekeepers begin to change and the people raised on radio when it was defined by Journey begin to make culture of their own. In Perry's case, Patty Jenkins, who'd go on to direct the blockbuster Wonder Woman, contacted him about using Don't Stop Believing in a scene for her 2003 independent film, Monster. And shortly after she made the request, Perry turned up on set asking how he could help her with her movie. The two became friends. Four years later, Don't Stop Believing turned up again in the 2007 finale of The Sopranos, after which it shot right up the iTunes chart, becoming the number three selling download 24 years after its 1981 release. And the Journey revival would only continue from there. Except that revival did nothing to coax Perry back into public life. But eventually, he met a woman who would ultimately do so. In 2011, Patty Jenkins directed an episode of Five, an anthology of TV movies about breast cancer and its impact on people's lives. Perry was visiting Jenkins one day when she was editing, and he was struck by one of the extras in a scene that featured real cancer patients. It was Kelly Nash, a Los Angeles psychologist. Perry asked for an email introduction, but Jenkins wanted him to know Nash's condition before reaching out. She had been in remission, but her cancer had returned and spread to her lungs and bones. 
At that moment, I had the opportunity to send no email, pull back, no harm, no foul, Perry told Rolling Stone recently. I would just go back to my safe life. Instead, I said, send the email. And an email turned into a phone call that lasted more than five hours, and soon enough, the two were living together. They had just a year and a half together before Nash passed away in December of 2012. Before her death, Nash asked Perry for a promise that he would not return to isolation. In fact, she urged him to return to music. That's part of the remarkable story behind Traces. And Perry had already been working on some music before he began recording Traces. Two of the most heartbreaking songs on the album, most of all in In the Rain, were actually written before he ever met Kelly Nash. But one reason the recording of this album took five years is that Perry actually built a home studio so that he could work his own way at his own pace. And he did that work very much in private. Those who participated signed non-disclosure agreements. The album certainly has music of loss and heartbreak, but it also has songs that, that have that healing vibe of Perry's return to his hometown, like Noah Racing. which involves a high school reunion reconnection and some time in the backseat of a car. And then there are songs that involve both heartbreak and healing, like Perry's remarkable cover of the Beatles' I Need You. That cover was actually a long time coming. Perry had been thinking about what he might want to do with that song, written by George Harrison, since he first heard it on the soundtrack to Help in 1965. He told me about playing his version of it for Harrison's widow, Olivia, and about how music, something he swore he'd never return to, became once again the most powerful focus of his life. Here's what else he had to say. Steve Perry, welcome to Inside the Studio. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Oh, you've got the motorcycle boots and you actually ride. I do have motorcycle boots, but I sold my bike. I had to get rid of it. I was afraid I was going to kill myself, but it did save my life when I first left the band. First thing I did was go back to my hometown and jump on a Harley that I bought that I never owned before. I bought a Softail Custom. It was a beautiful motorcycle. Uh, I bought it in Visalia, California, and I drove it to Hanford, California, put it in a storage unit, which I rented, right. and it lived there. So every time I'd go to that hometown of mine, I'd just park the car and jump on that bike, and I'd ride it out in the country where the fence posts and the jackrabbits were of my youth, to be honest with you. Man, I did that a lot. Back then, there was no helmet law. It was just long hair flying behind you, you know. It kind of helped put my head back together again. Did you grow up riding? No, but I did have a Honda when I was a young kid. I had a Honda trail bike. That's why I used to drive to school, so I kind of like scooters like that. Right. You know. Wait, so this Harley, this is like 
the fulfillment of some sort of it dream. It was. Then. It was. I finally bought a Harley, and it, it was an Evolution engine, beautiful, and Softail Custom, had a Cabernet color, tank, and fenders. Just really beautiful. I used to drive out in the country. And then, after it helped put my brain back together and give me that comfort, I actually just gave it to somebody about a year ago. Because I just didn't think I should be on it anymore. Because I'm... I'm just not that talented at writing anymore. Were you in an accident? or? Uh, well, when I used to drink, I certainly uh, would lay it down a couple of times. Right, because the truism is that there are two kinds of motorcycle riders, mm-hmm. those who've been in an accident and those who will be in an accident. That's right. That's right. How bad was it when you laid it down? Well, I, I was actually just coming out of a bar. I had had too many drinks, and mm-hmm. I just went to ride it and start it, and I lost my balance and I dropped it. What people who don't ride don't realize 700 is- pounds. It's heavy. It's heavy. I had to have two buddies help me straighten it up. Right. So that's kind of taught me that, number one, I shouldn't drink and ride the thing. Number two is that maybe I'm just not that skilled of a rider. You've said that when you left the band, bought this Harley, it helped put your head back together. It did. You've talked about that as a period where you had a kind of PTSD. I did. What form did this PTSD take for you? For me, I could not listen to music Mm. of any kind, Mm. and I could not sing or write music of any kind. The only thing I could listen to was stuff that was called ambient at that time, which was like Liquid Mine. Steve Roach had some music out. This was like ambient. And there was no drums. There was no guitars. There was no voices. There was no, you know, anything like that. And it was just something I thought that, uh, especially Liquid Mine, the changes of Liquid Mind sort of were emotionally putting me back together a little bit at a time. But it was quite some time before I could listen to the music of my youth, which was uh, the R&B and Sam Cooks and all that. It took a while just to get back to that. And just to stick with that notion of putting your mind back together, that PTSD, it sounds like also you were self-medicating at that point. Self-medicating. I was not medicating. Well, drinking is... is oh, there's no doubt that before I even left the group, we were all in some sort of behaviors. Hmm. <laughs> okay. And that contributed to the emptiness that was a feeling of disconnect with the passion for music. Hmm. It was a pretty scary thing. So I didn't just go back to my hometown and disappear. I, I reconvened with some feelings and the streets and the country roads and the old ice cream parlor. Plus I had at that time, my father's sister was still alive and I went and helped take care of her because she was in her 90s. And um, got her situated and visited her a lot because she was going from from one home of assisted living to another as her needs became more required for assistance. So I was taking care of her, too. That was a big thing I was doing at the time. You mentioned the music that had first meant a lot to you, the music that you grew up on. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Who were the singers that you learned from? Oh, my goodness. The ones I learned the most from were pocket singers. They had rhythm in their phrasings. The Sam Cooks, the Jackie Wilsons, the uh, Levi Stubbs from the Four Tops. Even Smokey Robinson, in his own way, was very light and lilty, but so soulful. Marvin Gaye, of course. Then later came Gladys Knight. Um, I loved the Supremes when I was growing up. You know, I was really a big Motown fan. So besides the songwriting and the recording and the music I grew up with, there was this other factor of what were they doing, meaning how are they recording it? How does it sound that way? And why does it feel that way? And how did they get that drum sound? And what kind of echoes on the 
the voice of Levi Stubbs in the song Bernadette or Baby I Need Your Lovin' or, or the Marvin Gaye Troubled Man. Uh, I mean, there was just another focus that started to show up in my heart of trying to learn from all that at an early age. So those are production engineering They questions. were, but they were invaluable things that, that I thought I needed to pay attention to. And I started really early on listening to, to the whole thing because I realized very early on, like about seven, eight years old, why does it feel and sound that way? It wasn't just a 45. What went into this? Why does it come out like that? I wanted to know what's behind it. So I slowly started to just go to school, so to speak, with going into these tracks, listening to the echoes. Is it stereo? Is it mono? My goodness, it's mono. Wow, okay. And start really getting into why it works the way it does. You know, and then all of a sudden, years later, when the Beatles showed up, what I found fascinating is if you listen to Motown, most of those were done on four track. And if you listen to the early like Beatles for Sale record, it's four track. Because you can hear that they've recorded like three tracks and bounced them to the left of the band. And you can hear that they have uh, no reply, for instance. They have Ringo and I think George and maybe Paul in the distance on the right side on one track accentuating the downbeat of the chorus. No reply. Okay, so you got Ringo on the right going and pinching the cymbal with a bass drum. Boom. Okay, so you get that in time with what's already there on the left side when they get the basic. So they're accentuating with an accent stuff that works with the main track in the most cool way. And then they have two tracks left of them to mess around and do vocals down the middle. Now, what's really fascinating is if you listen to the lead vocal of John in the middle, the echo's on the right. It's not on the left. So when they're mixing this stuff, these are the things, these are the decisions they've decided to make to give it spread, to give it this inclusive feeling. Dude, four channels. Four channels. What that means is that they had to really make a commitment once you commit to these tracks, you can't go back. It isn't like today where you got tracks to choose from. You know, like we're recording right now, you got multiple tracks we can choose from. No, you got four channels. Well, since we're talking about the Beatles, there's a Beatles song on Traces on your new album. Yes, there is. I Need You. Mm -hmm. How did you come to choose that one? What drew you to it? When I was really young, I loved the Help record. But there was one song by George Harrison called I Need You that was so beautiful. And it was a bossa nova feel. They were kind of into that bossa nova thing at that time. They did a lot of tunes like that. Though I liked it, I thought it was a bigger song than that. I wasn't being degraded. I just thought, my goodness, this is such a great song. I think it needs a different treatment. And I knew that as a kid. So that when it came time to do the Traces record. So this is one you've been thinking about or feeling for a long time then. Well, that one's been in the back pocket for years since I was a kid. So I turned to my co-producer engineer, Tom Flowers, and said, Tom, you know, I got this idea and I got this sketch of me just with acoustic voice on one of my drives. Can I play it for you? It's a Beatles song called I Need You by George Harrison. So I played it for him and he loved it. So the next thing I know, Vinnie Caliuto was over there recording some drums, I think, for No More Crying. I said, Vinnie, I got this other song. Would you mind just doing a pass on it? He said, sure, man. What do you got? I played it for him. He says, oh, yeah, you know, Vinnie Caliuto's got a, a feel from heaven. So he went out there, one pass, just nailed it. So from that point on, 
that song became what I always envisioned it to be, which is the piano and voice in the beginning, then coming in and growing and growing with background vocals. I wrote different background vocals at the outro than are on the original and with a drum break going into them. And um, it's on my record. Now, I wouldn't have that if it wasn't for Olivia, by the way, because I was only going to put it on my record if I got her permission. Mm -hmm. So you played her the finished version. So I brought the CD in to Olivia, and uh, she turned it on and listened to the whole thing top to bottom. And I was very nervous because this is Olivia Harrison, you know. And I love George so much. She listened to the whole track one time, and she grabbed the remote and quickly restarted it. And I went, oh, my goodness, did she hear something she wasn't pleased with, I thought, you know. And she got halfway through the second listen, turned the volume down, and said, George would have just loved this so much. And I'll tell you what, I felt his soul just give me approval through Olivia. And uh, I needed her blessing, so that's why it's on the record. You know, it's also interesting as well that this is a song you've been thinking about since you first heard it. Yep. That you've had in your back pocket, as you say. Emotionally. But thematically fits a record that often deals with love, loss. A record that you said would not exist without heartbreak. I think that's very true. I've said it before, and I guess I should say it again. The heart isn't complete until it's completely broken. And until you lose somebody that completely breaks your heart, you're just not probably as seasoned or complete as a human being as you could be. And I can only tell you that's been my experience. It didn't feel great losing Kelly. It was horrible. From time to time, I still go through the the heartbreak like it was yesterday. But that's just, I think, an affirmation of the strength of what we had. It's just an affirmation of that. But um, the record it traces is not all heartbreak. It's about rock and roll. It's about class reunion moments it's it's about we're still here it's about you know there's a lot of great music on the record but there are a couple of songs that uh do deal with the loss of someone well you just mentioned a, a reunion moment i think you might be referring to the first track on the record yeah no, no erasing. Erasing, yeah First words, I know it's been a long time coming since I've seen your face, which is an interesting way. It's a reintroduction for you. It's been a minute since we've heard from you. it's been a minute for sure. But that song, tell us what inspired that song. It originally just started as a a sketch with David Spring at my house, and um, it started to grow, and I loved the words, no erasing. I felt this way before, no erasing, no running anymore. That's how it started. And then when it came time to do the verse, that just came out. I know it's been a long time coming since I've seen your face. Uh, or since I saw your face. I can't remember now. <laughs> so the song itself evolved into a reunion song where these two people meet each other at a class reunion and they get together, go outside and talk a little bit about old times. And they both have lives in different cities in the world. But they're together by themselves, and they get into her car, and they go for a drive. And in my town, people would go smooch at this one particular place. Yeah, is that all they do? They just go for a drive? Because well, they're in the back seat. They jump in the back seat okay. of her car. And, you know, I don't know. 
don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let you figure that out. Okay. I'm going to tell you what happens. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, you were saying that where you grew up, there was such a spot. Oh, yeah. Where I grew up, there was a place called Pier 9 where four or five canals, irrigation canals, converged. And in that spot, there was actually a few oil drums out there where people could leave their beer cans or whatever. So it was a very well-known spot to park and smooch or whatever. And so uh, that's kind of the the vision of what the spot is that they would go to in the backseat of her car. You know, I mean, I can't be the only one to feel this way because I grew up on your music. and <laughs> I grew up on my music. <laughs> interesting. Well put. But to start with that kind of return to the high school smooching spot, as it were, right? Right. There's something very fitting about that. Don't you think that everything comes from high school? Don't you think that after we leave high school, all we're trying to do is become a little more powerful, a little bit more monetary? But the truth is we're still all in high school. Emotionally. I mean, there is the old saying about Hollywood being like high school with money, you know. Uh, I think that's true. <laughs> I think rock and roll is high school with money. Really? Oh, yeah. How so? Well, I think emotionally, I think the whole thing Hollywood and rock and roll can be, wow, now that you've mentioned, I have a theory about, for instance, Hollywood. When you go to a set, which I did a lot while I was on vacation, by the way, because I love film and I love directing and so many of my friends are directors. So I've been hanging out on a lot of sets. If you walk onto a set, what's fascinating is the food that's on a set is children's food. It's Are you cookies. talking about the craft yeah. services table where there's oh, always cookies, cookies, there's always donuts, donuts, 24 hours a day? It's children's food. It's like a dream come true, kind of like candy store. So I think it's fulfilling this dream that you're living the dream, which starts with you can have anything you want, almost like a Pinocchio where they all go to the island where they can do whatever they want and they grow ears, you know. Right. I really think there's some truth to that. So there's a never-never land quality And to backstage it. can be the same, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably, along with the M&Ms, you have other delicious yeah. things that yeah. you can have. No, sure, backstage famously can be that way. Let's talk about rock and roll. I want to go back to a moment, April 2017, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame mm -hmm. induction. It was the first time some of us had seen you for a long while. And I want to go back to something you said in your induction speech, talking about growing up, being in Los Angeles in the mid-70s and going to see Journey at the Starwood yeah. before you were a member of the band. And I quote, are you fucking shitting me? <laughs> Any singer would give his ass for that shit. I mean, they played so well. Now, Steve, let me ask you a question. Okay. Is that the way you wrote it out in advance? No. <laughs> I was up there and I just kind of turned into Joe Pesci for a minute. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what it was like to see those guys at the Starwood whenever well, it was. They were amazing. I mean, it was Greg Rowley, it was Neil Sean, it was Ross Valerie and Ainsley Dunbar. I think George Tickner at that point had already left the group. So that was the lineup. Now, you know that the band was originally built around Neil Sean and that Greg Rowley used to pick him up in high school when he was like 16 and brought him into Santana. So then when Greg left Santana, he brought Neil with him and they formed this group around Neil. So that was the beginning of Journey and I would see them play all the time. And I knew people could get me backstage and I got to sort of hang around and meet him and just sort of like, you know, make my presence like, hi, you know. But they're thinking, who's this big-nosed kid, you know? <laughs> What's he doing back here? 
All I know is I remember the Starwood like it was yesterday. I could see that stage in the corner. They would be just cranking it. And Neil would have one of these Fender amps just leaning back, and he'd have one strap plugged into a wah-wah pedal. And we'd only use the wah-wah pedal for a tone enhancement. He really didn't do a lot of wah-wah-wah-wah-wah stuff. he just use it to, like, have it scream at spots or pull back at spots like a tone change. Uh, it was very, very creative kid. His guitar would soar over the whole city of Los Angeles. It really was. It was amazing. So when I got the call from um, Don Ellis, who was running Columbia Records at that time, he loved my demo. But my bass player of it in the band I was in that he loved got killed in a car wreck the 4th of July weekend. So the next thing I know, I get this call from Don Ellis, and he wants to know if I'm interested in the band that's on the label. Sorry to hear what happened to your band, but Journey's looking for a singer, and they want to write songs. They want to make a musical change. That's exactly what I was told. So I said, well, yeah, <laughs> okay. So next thing I know, I'm in Denver, Colorado with Neil Sean, and we're rooming together after they had opened for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and we wrote Patiently. That was our first song. So here we stand so patiently And that's a song that you sat down and wrote together because you had this other band. So I imagine you might have had some songs oh, in your back pocket already. I did. I had great songs in my pocket, but they were not the kind of songs that uh, the journey was probably going to be hmm. good at writing or playing. Just out of curiosity, what kind of songs were they? If you listen to my Steve Perry Greatest Hits album, you'll hear that demo hmm. that got me the gig with Journey is on there. It's called If You Need Me, Call Me. You should play that. And we will. If you need me, call me is a song that was the first song that got me the demo action with Columbia Records. And that's the one that Herbie Herbert, the band's manager, had heard and convinced them to fly me out to write with them. So you flew out to write with them. They were Colorado, opening for yeah. ELP. Yeah. And so you had yet to perform with them. You just no, sit down. It's no. literally after a show and you sit down to start writing. Just sketching. Yeah, just sketching some ideas. And I mean, he had these changes that were just beautiful. So... I just started the singing, here I stand so patiently, you know, for your lights to shine on me, for your song inside of me, this we bring to you. It just started to go. That song just came quick. If you listen to the lyrics, it's really a story about where I'm at at that moment, talking to them about patiently waiting to join that band or, or to be under the lights that they were under, for your lights inside of me, this we bring to you, you know. When you were writing these songs that have never left the radio. Did you know? Oh, like, no. Really? No, I think that only thing anyone can do is chase after the um, honest emotion of making it the best it can be, just making it great and then turning it over and hoping that people get 
what you were trying to put into it. They all got that kind of concerted effort, including Don't Stop Believing. That one didn't get any more than any of the other ones. In fact, there's so many other songs that I love just as much, but that one has been embraced by a large amount of people. So when you came back to recording, when you came back to writing for this record, when and how did things start? Because you've been working on this for a number of years and several songs were written before you knew Kelly. Well, they were written before I met Kelly. The two you're mentioning is actually Most of All and In the Rain. And those are the two songs I never played for her because they they were about loss, especially In the Rain is about profound grieving and loss. And I did not want to bring that energy into her struggle. She was already going through plenty. So that was the only secret I kept from her, really. Mm-hmm. After I lost Kelly, I found those songs on the hard drive and decided they now are about my life after losing her, and I wrote them before I met her. So it was kind of an interesting, bizarre thing, and so that's why they're on the record. Then I built a studio, and that took some time, and getting that dialed in the way I wanted it took some time. Once that was up and running with the proper equipment, uh, started recording. So this home studio is something you built to make this record. Yes. And when you were recording, writing demos before that? I was recording them in a Pro Tool rig on a laptop, but I had outboard gear, Neumann M49 as a mic, and I had uh, an API, uh, we call it a lunch pail, which has a preamp and an EQ and a uh, compressor limiter in it. So I can go right in the inbox into my computer. And so the vocals on this record, a lot of them are just some of the rough sketches because the first time I sang it, it had a magic to it. And then I started surrounding musicians around some of those vocals. I mean, I have to say, when you listen to this record, my first reaction was, holy shit, it's Steve Perry. (laughs) Again, it had been a minute, but the vocals are there. There is a certain difference to them. You've got a little more wisdom in the vocals now. Yeah, they're a little little bit more grainy, a little bit more spicy, I think, a little bit more soulful, I think, in a lot of ways. I got to tell you, I think Patty Jenkins is a big part of that, who is one of my close friends. And I had played her one of my early sketches and I didn't know if she would like it or not. And I was afraid to play it for anybody but her because I Mm. trust her. She had seen me go through a lot. We were close friends. And so I played it for her after we had lunch one day in the car. And I looked out of the window to the left because I didn't want to watch her reaction. And after it was over, I looked to the right and I said, so what do you think? She said, I think it's amazing. I said, but the vocals aren't done. It's just, there's no lyrics. I'm just mumbling this and that's, and she said, I know all that, but it just sounds so much like you. That is exactly what I was saying. I know. I know. I guess I had to turn all that thinking off because there was no way for me to leave if I was going to keep that going. Turn what thinking off? What do you mean? I guess to walk away from an amazing ride and leave the group and look at anything that you're saying I had to turn my heart off to keep walking away from the music business and including the fact that people love me perhaps. And I just couldn't look at it. It's like any relationship, you know, if you're leaving a relationship Mm -hmm. and you need to leave, even though it's, you love it, but it's painful. How many people have done that? No matter what the relationship is, bands are no different. A relationship is a relationship. 
Sometimes to walk away, you've got to keep walking. You can't fall back into it. And in order for me not to fall back in, at that particular time when I left, I had to turn the volume down on my heart. But it's so interesting because I absolutely understand what you're talking about. And at the same time, when you leave a relationship, you don't always walk away from a relationship thinking, that's it. I can never have another relationship. But you left music and for a moment... That was it. You couldn't hear it. You Only didn't want because it. I was toast. I mean, mm. I was so PTSD burnt that whenever I started getting back into music, I would twinge, you know. I thought, well, I'm, so when did that begin to change and how did it A couple of years. It took good two years, honestly. Mm. Two years out of, of leaving the group, I started to listen to music again and, and the music of my youth and, and radio again. And, you know, by then, by the way, Nirvana showed up. And I'm going, Wow. Good for you guys, man. Now it's your turn. Fantastic. Grunge. Love it. Garage band. Go. Get it. Go get some. And so here came all these Seattle groups. So the music had turned another corner. I was just happy for everybody and just thought, well, I had my time. Now they're having theirs. So what began to draw you back into songwriting? I think that the passion for sketching some rough ideas gave me a moment occasionally where I go, wow, that could be cool. And I would do what I call going under where I wear the headphones and I turn the echoes up in very, very large amounts to where I can just zone out and pretend there's a landscape of possibilities in my mind. And I just love some of the interaction of the harmonics of changes and my voice melodies and see what actually becomes complementary to those. And then I listen and I wait and I, and I start to follow those little moments whenever they cross like that. That started to feed me some hopeful possibilities that maybe I could write some more music again. What about performing? That's something we're going to talk about when I get back to the West Coast. Uh, right now, I'm just talking about this record and I'm so glad it's finally out. It's really been a long time coming, really, to be honest with you. And that's the most powerful focus of my life right now is that I actually have completed something that there was a time I swore I'd never do again. And it's really crazy. Never say never sometimes. Be careful. Well, I, I got to tell you, Steve, we're so happy to have you back and we're so happy to have you here at Inside the Studio. Boy, it's been my pleasure. And thank you very much for having me. We're still here. Inside the Studio is an iHeartRadio original podcast. This episode was written and hosted by me, Joe Levy. We'd like to give a big thank you to Steve Perry and Fantasy Records. You can follow Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio, or you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts. 